Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, I'm Matt Chorley. This is the Red Box podcast featuring the best of my Times radio show, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. An extraordinarily packed show. Today we spoke to Mike Barton, uh, former Chief Constable of Durham Police. He had some strong words to say about Dominic Cummings and his trip to Barnard Castle. Uh, we also uh, found out about Kevin the Anorexic Snake. We spoke to Ben Fogel about the smell of the countryside. But two really standout things from the show today, which we're going to bring you on the podcast. Later, a live rocket launch taking uh, the Perseverance rover to Mars. But first, we talked Clement Attlee, 75 years after he became Prime Minister. Now then, 75 years ago this week in 1945, Clement Attlee, leader of the Labour Party, became Prime Minister. He took control of a war-ravaged Britain, a crippled economy and an employment crisis as millions of soldiers sought to return to the workforce. Right now, the contrasting starboard between the two leaders of Britain's major political parties, Clement Attlee and Winston Churchill, couldn't have been starker. But perhaps again like now, the country had also emerged from crisis uh, in the mood for some quite radical change when it came to how society was shaped. So what we're going to talk about now is how uh, Labour can learn from Clement Attlee's victory and also what lessons the Conservative Party can perhaps learn about how you uh, you emerge from a crisis uh, with the public still on side. I'm joined now by Nick Thomas-Simmons, uh, the Shadow Home Secretary, but actually also a biographer of Clement Attlee. Uh, Attlee, A Life in Politics was published in 2010. Morning, Nick. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Matt. Uh, we'll, we'll have you on another time to talk about your day job as Shadow Home Secretary, but we're, we're, we're um, keen to talk about your, your, your um, political... Uh, work and biographies that you wrote uh, before. Also joined by Professor Stephen Fielding, historian and author of The Labour Party from Callaghan to Corbyn, uh, which is out next year. Morning, Stephen. Good morning. Uh, let's start, you, I'll start with you first of all, Stephen, as you sort of put this into context. Um, just explain why Attlee is such a huge figure in Labour Party history. Well, I mean, when, when experts are asked who was the greatest prime minister um, in post-war Britain or 20th century Britain, they either put Attlee first, often first, or he's definitely in the top three. So he is a significant figure um, in terms of British history, political history, um, and, and has what his government did, um, the one that was elected on a landslide in 1945, the first Labour government to enjoy a majority in the House of Commons, in the circumstances that you described of, you know, economic crisis, just emerging out of the war, all kinds of things were going on. Despite, despite all of those troubles, his government changed the course of British history. It instituted a cradle-to-the-grave welfare state, at the heart of which was the National Health Service, which of course is still with us, and made a tremendous impact on ordinary people's lives by making them feel safe 
from the impact of illness, um, unemployment and poverty, um, and also change the nature of, of our economy. And on that basis, by nationalising 20% of, of industry, and obviously that has now gone by the board, um, thanks to um, Margaret Thatcher, she reversed that. But she couldn't really reverse, despite you know, clearly wanting to. Um, sub the central achievement, the remaining central achievement of, of the Atlee administration, which was the National Health Service. So everybody's lives today, and particularly during the COVID crisis, which is you know, clearly still with us, is affected by the actions of the government that he led. And he led it, you know, in a very, well, Nick will know much more about how Atlee actually did things, but he led it in, in the circumstances where he was actually you know, elected, the government was elected, and yet it was a very divided party. Herbert Morris and his deputy tried to get rid of him, um, but he's, he managed to get through all of that and, and to create a, a very different Britain to the one that went into the Second World War. And that many people like Churchill said, we can't afford to do any of this. And yet we could and we did. Uh, so, Nick, let me bring you in there. I'm, I'm sure you can't imagine uh, a situation where a, a Labour leader oversaw a, a divided party and some people wanted to get rid of the leader. That's beyond your, <laughs> beyond your comprehension. But just, just explain for people um, uh, what sort of man Clement Attlee was like, because obviously, you know, every school child could tell you lots of things about Winston Churchill, but probably not a huge amount about Clement Attlee. I think, I think, I think, that, I think that's, that's probably right. And Attlee's, if you like, burning uh, in sense of injustice, his real sense of wanting to change things came from his experience prior to World War I in the East End of London. He had a, a very comfortable upbringing. His, he was born in 1883 in Putney, uh, very Anglican upbringing with prayers before breakfast. Father was the president of the Law Society. Mother, came, Ellen, came from uh, a family of doctors went to Haleybury in 1896, and that is significant because it was regarded as the school that provided uh, the civil servants who went out to India, and of course he was the Prime Minister who gave independence to India. But it was in that period prior to World War I, Haleybury sponsored the Stepney Boys Club, which looked to tackle and to assist poorer children in the East End of London. Attlee became its manager, and he drew a conclusion which never left him, which was that he wasn't opposed to charity. He thought charity was a good thing, but thought that charity in and of its own couldn't eliminate poverty. You had to have a government that systemically did it. And that's the belief that stayed with him. And, of course, he came to actually then implement so many policies that looked to do that systematically after 1945. And on the question of uh, what the Labour Party 75 years on can learn from, from Clement Attlee, uh, what are the lessons, do you think, in, in 21st century Britain? Well, first of all, there's a very obvious immediate parallel between, I think, 1945 and today in that there's been a period of extraordinary collective sacrifice. Very, very different, of course. The, the, you know, the war, the, the Second World War is obviously very different to the uh, coronavirus crisis. But nonetheless, there is that theme of collective sacrifice in the sense that things should be different afterwards. So there's that immediate parallel. But in addition to that, I think the real lesson of Attlee is about constructive achievement. Attlee was interested in doing things. And you look at that period, particularly the period from 1945 to 1948 that Stephen was referring to with, you know, the welfare state, the NHS, the economic changes, and also 
you know, the, the foreign policy as well, with independence for India, NATO, of course. There was this tremendous period of achievement that actually changed people's lives. And I think that's the thing that I've always found such an inspiration about Atlee. Uh, he wasn't someone who was terribly bothered about uh, appearances and other things. And, you know, he... It is remarkable, really, that he engaged so little with the media, given that he was uh, the prime minister. But it was doing things he was interested in and getting things done. And I think that remains a big inspiration today. And, uh, Stephen, in the past, uh, the, the sort of the Attlee legacy was uh, appropriated by some supporters of Jeremy Corbyn. Do you think that was a fair comparison when people tried to draw that, that, that parallel? Um, well, I, I, I could see what they were doing. I could see what they were trying to do, um, because obviously the Attlee government is is associated with a vast extension of government intervention, of putting the state before the market and things like that. And Jeremy Corbyn was associated with, with that with that kind of an approach. But but also Attlee was um, led led the government that helped form NATO. Um, that was actually quite patriotic in many of its kind of ways of thinking about the, the place of Britain in the world. And, and while it kind of decolonised and, you know, India gained its independence, um, it also sent troops to, to Korea when, when it was threatened by, by the Chinese communists. So, so that, was a, that was kind of a bit of a disingenuous uh, kind of appropriation. <laughs> but but I, I, I admired them for it. I mean, Boris Johnson has tried to appropriate Churchill himself and that's that's an equally ridiculous attempt but nonetheless it seems to have stuck a bit more um nick who who is the real heir to Attlee? is it jeremy corbyn or keir starmer well i think that keir starmer and this is one of the reasons i backed him for leader will belong in the tradition of labor leaders who won general elections i'm afraid that it's not a particularly long list uh it's only Attlee, of course, in 1945, 1950, Wilson and Tony Blair, who won elections for Labour in the last uh, 70 odd years. But I also think, you know, and I work with Keir Starmer on a daily basis, he certainly has, you know, Attlee's forensic approach and attention to detail in meetings. I mean, Attlee, by the way, had this wonderful way with meetings. He, his leadership style was about ensuring that a decision was reached. And he was a stickler for the agenda and a stickler for people not wasting time. And he once said that democracy was about discussion, but it only worked if you could stop people talking. <laughs> and is that your experience of Keir Starmer in meetings? Is he also a stickler for the agenda? He, he's highly efficient uh, with meetings, <laughs> absolutely. And, and so he should be as well. There are important issues we have to discuss. And I think having he's got this incredibly strong sense of purpose, which is one of the many things that makes him so great to work for. Stephen also mentioned the issue of patriotism. And obviously one of the big dividing lines between the sort of the Attlee Corbyn comparison was, uh, is that Attlee was seen much more as a patriot. And it was a big criticism of Jeremy Corbyn that he wasn't. Do, do you think that Keir Starmer is in the same mould as Attlee as a, someone who is patriotic? He, he is very strongly uh, patriotic and very much in that tradition. I mean, Attlee obviously had this very particular view of the world that came from his background. And his service, Attlee's service in World War I, is also something I think people often underrate when they interpret his life, because he, he wasn't someone who was conscripted. He, of course, volunteered in 1914 prior to the introduction of conscription, and even he suffered from dysentery on the beaches of Gallipoli and was given the option 
of either going back home to England or going to Malta and coming back to the fray. And he actually went, he actually chose to go to Malta, came back to Gallipoli and ended up uh, in a situation where he was one of the last on the beach. So Athley had this tremendously deep patriotism and sense of service that I think remained a theme throughout his life. Oh, it was really good to speak to Nick Thomas Simmons there, uh, Atlee biographer and shadow Home Secretary, joining us on Times Radio. Nick's got to go, but Stephen, you can stay with us for a few more minutes, I think. OK, yeah. <laughs> what, do, what do you sort of... I mean, is, is the comparison... That, and obviously, Nick's got to be nice to his boss and draw the comparisons, you know, as he was saying, mm. the, the list of Labour leaders who've won elections uh, doesn't even require a whole hand. Um, so uh, is it a fair comparison to be sort of putting Keir Starmer up on that level yet? Or is it sort of too early to tell? Well, I mean, it's too early to tell to be completely definitive. Um, and I'm a historian, so I need about 50 years before I can come <laughs> to a conclusion about anything, really. But there are certain kind of obvious similarities, surface similarities. I mean, he's starting, Starmer is starting with a manifesto, the 2019 manifesto, that is probably even more radical than the one that, that was put to the country in 1945. Um, but he's... And we've yet to see what he's going to do with that manifesto. You know, what's he's go- what is he going to take out? But even if he takes out a few things, it's still going to be a very, very radical kind of p- promoting of the state over the market kind of um, a- an approach. Um, but he's going, he clearly is, is going to kind of wrap that up with, with a more patriotic, a more kind of conventional um, kind of an approach to society than, than Jeremy Corbyn was associated with. I mean, that, that was, that's the great difference between Starmer um, and Attlee and Corbyn, um, that he'll be kind of conservative with a, with a small C, not, um, you know, traditional, maybe he's going too far in terms of cultural issues, but, but much more radical than, than a Labour, than Miliband would have been, than certainly Tony Blair would have been, um, in terms of economic issues. And that's the mix that Attlee had. He was very, he was very culturally conservative, um, didn't, didn't challenge the grammar schools, kept the private schools in place and the BBC and the monarchy and everything. But he was tremendously radical in what he did to the economy and society. And to what extent do party, should parties think about history? Because obviously, the, the, I mean, generally quite what, what happens if parties, you know, internally and political obsessives within political parties, yeah. they get a bit caught up in history. You know, the Conservative Party, you know, tying itself in knots for, for years and years about, uh, you know, Margaret Thatcher, um, yeah. you know, in both directions. The Labour Party has basically spent the last decade tying itself in knots about what New Labour did. So how... In a way that where where um, uh, voters want to know about the future, not you know comparing yourself to people they've barely heard of, is in, yeah. is history important to a political party in that sense? Well, history can be a help and a hindrance at the same time, like you were saying about the legacy of Margaret Thatcher. But 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 when when we celebrated VE Day um, a few months ago, um, we were getting Winston Churchill, Winston Churchill, Winston Churchill, and and you know in some sense that that permeates through to thinking, well, Winston Churchill, he was a conservative, he was about you know he was very patriotic, he's associated with the war, and yet we never hear about Attlee. Um, I mean, Winston Churchill was voted the greatest Britain in 2002. And Clement Attlee, the man who supported Churchill uh, in the decision not to give in to Germany in, 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 in 1940, in fact, was a very important figure. Him and Bevan were very important figures in making sure that the government fought on. And, and he, ran the, he ran, basically ran Britain during the war and then went on to form that government that we've talked about and created the NHS. 
Clement Attlee wasn't even in the top 100. I mean, David Becker was, Bono was, <laughs> but, but, but not Clement Attlee. So, I mean, in the sense that it, it'd be quite important for Labour to put Attlee back in, in some way. So to, to at least challenge the idea that only the Conservatives, you know, are associated with these great national events. Only Churchill is the person that can sort of, is, is the person that we should turn to, or somebody who wants to be like Churchill, like Boris Johnson. There's a reason why Boris Johnson is constantly, you know, he wrote, wrote that book about Churchill because he wanted people to think of him as being like Churchill. And, you know, it, it can help. It can help you. Um, and so I think it's a useful exercise for Labour to try to promote Attlee a little bit more because Attlee, at least, is kind of sympathetic to, the, to, what, to what Starmer's trying to do. As I say, you be culturally conservative. You're reassuring. I mean, Attlee wasn't one for the big rhetoric. He hardly said anything, really, in public. <laughs> and yet, you know, I mean, cause it's the Theodore Roosevelt quote that comes to mind about talk quietly and carry a big stick. Starmer's very much like that. He's very reassuring. He's, he says he's, he sounds very sensible. He looks very sensible. He looks very calm. Um, he's saying things that many people want to hear. But he's also, you know, behind him, it is a very radical programme that, that he is potentially has already signed up to. And, and in these times of crisis, I think that's what that seems to be what a lot of people want. But he says it in a reassuring way. And, and Attlee would be a reassuring historical figure to say, well, we've been here before. We've done it before. And Attlee is, a, is kind of the, the exemplar of, of Labour's done it in the past. We can do it in the future. Well, it's really good to speak to you. That's uh, Stephen Fielding, the, the, the uh, historian, talking us through the legacy of uh, Clement Attlee, became uh, Prime Minister 75 years ago this week. If you like what you're hearing, you can listen to the whole of my Times Radio show. Either listen back on the Times Radio app, or you can listen live Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. We'll have more on the episode after this. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
question that David Bowie asked. Was it 49 years ago, I think? Uh, and uh, 41 years ago, I think, by Matt is slightly out. Uh, David Bowie, is there life on Mars? Well, we're getting closer, possibly, to finding out. Uh, very excitingly, uh, there's, a, there's a new... Uh, mission leaving NASA in the next five or ten minutes, uh, which is going to send a rover called Perseverance uh, to Mars uh, to try and see if there was or is any life on Mars. So here to talk us through uh, what is uh, the UK's involvement in the uh, in this launch and what we might end up finding out is Sue Horn, Head of Space Exploration at the UK Space Agency. Afternoon, Sue. Good afternoon. Uh, that's about the coolest uh, job title we've had on Times Radio so far, Head of Space Exploration at the UK Space Agency. Uh, so um, it, this is exciting stuff, isn't it? Yes, because we, we've been wanting to do this mission for about 40 years, and it's only just now that the technology is there to do it. It's a very complex mission. This is the perseverance is the first step. What we want to do is go to Mars collect some rocks and bring them back to Earth. So Perseverance is all about identifying the best rocks to come back to Earth, taking core, using a drill to take cores of those rocks and put sealing them in a tube to be brought back to Earth. But crucially, not by Perseverance. Not by perseverance. You've got to split it into several missions. So the mission after perseverance, which will be about in about as either 2026 or 2028, will take an ascent, a Mars ascent vehicle, basically a rocket, to take the, the samples from the surface of Mars back into orbit, and that will have with it a sample fetch rover so that will travel from the ascent vehicle go to where perseverance has left the rock samples collect the samples and take them back and load them into the ascent vehicle now that sample fetch rover is going to be built in the uk at Airbus in Stevenage, and that's all thanks to government in investment in November, our contribution to the European Space Agency. So we're helping out with getting the, the, the rocks from Mars back to Earth. Yes, uh, and we're, our scientists have also been involved in working out what are the best instruments to have on board Perseverance. We have scientists on the Perseverance science team that will help to select the rocks to, to be brought back. And the, um, how do you decide what rocks to bring back? Because, and I, I say this as someone who's not a scientist, don't all rocks look the same? Uh, no, no. If, <laughs> there are different forms of, of rocks. So there's some uh, rocks for, from, from magna or lava. There's then rocks that have been processed, so they've been worn away by, by the weather and redeposited, so lake sediments, river sediments. And those are the ones that you're re interested in because uh, on Earth, that's what you're looking for when you're looking for fossils. Now, three and a half, four billion years ago on Mars, Mars was very similar to the Earth. So it's had water... Uh, it had a thicker atmosphere, 
And that was the time on Earth when life started to emerge. And the question is, did life emerge on Mars? And if so, has it left microfossils, fossils of the microbes that form them? We, we can now identify those microbes in Earth rocks. So we have the technology to, uh, to find these little microbes. So what you're looking for is sedimentary rocks, the ones that have been laid down by layers, ones that, ones that have been alt rocks that have been altered by water, and with, with a high organic matter, so ones that contain carbon. Uh, and so, the, I, no, I know I do remember from my um, sort of geography lessons, sedimentary rock, and that's what you see down at Lyme Regis, isn't it, where you can see the lines in the in the in the uh, cliff walls, and that's where you, you find those fossils and that there. So, so in a way, it's David Bowie asked the wrong question. It's not is there life on Mars? It's was there life on Mars? And what you're hoping to find is tiny fossils uh, of of the life on Mars. We're not bringing back little green men in uh, in a in a test tube, are we? It's tiny fossils. Um, but that would be a huge breakthrough, wouldn't it, to discover there had been life on Mars? Yes. I think there's a very remote possibility that there is still life on Mars, but it would be microbe level because we now understand that life can survive much more extreme environments than, than we used, used to think. So life on Earth... You, you get it at the cold temperatures in the Arctic. It, it, it's very slow living. And also you find uh, in deep in the oceans, uh, and we've also found life deep in mines where you wouldn't expect it. So we have to treat these samples, no matter how remote it is, that potentially they may have life on them. And I'm, I'm saying this is really really remote but you have to take that precaution so the mission's been carefully designed that anything that has seen the surface of mars will not see the surface of will not see earth on it on its return and it will and the samples will go into a biosecure building until we've investigated them and made sure that there's absolutely no life on current life and we can then go on and look at is there past life and so how excited there's only a few sort of seconds counting down to this this launch now we i think we can listen in to what's uh, happening yeah. in the background how exciting is it for you watching this about I, to happen i have a, a blend of excitement and nerves because i have been involved with missions that have uh, um not uh, have failed on launch so let's uh, let's listen oh, into that live now. launch. Yeah. Brilliant. Eight, seven, six, five, five, four. Engine ignition. Two, one, zero. Relay and liftoff. As the countdown to Mars continues, the perseverance of humanity launching the next generation of robotic explorers to the red planet. And Atlas TU has gone to closed loop control. So this is a, a radio first for Times Radio. We've only been, been on air for a month, but bringing you uh, the sound uh, of a, a, a rocket launch from NASA taking Perseverance, a rover, to Mars. Uh, 
I'm joined on Times Radio still by Sue Horn, Head of Space Exploration at the UK Space Agency. How do you feel watching that, that lift-off, Sue? Really good. I'm still nervous because I know that the issues can still happen as the rocket is going up. I, I calm down once it's got on its flight to Mars. So once it's separated from the rocket and the spacecraft is, go, is going to Mars. So that, that will take a few minutes more, but this is all looking, all looking good. It's, it's looking successful to date. And I, uh, last, uh, no, two or three years ago, I, I happened to be in Florida on a family holiday, and we went down to the uh, Kennedy Space Centre, and we were lucky enough to see a rocket. Uh, I think it was taking some supplies up to the um, uh, International Space Station. It's an extraordinary thing, isn't it? Being And even some distance away, just the noise, the roar, it's such an incredible uh, 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 sound. And the vibration, you feel it, 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 you feel it in your body as well. You really do. You really do. Have you been? Have you been? You've obviously been there and, and seen it uh, as a um, in real life. I I have done one launch, and uh, it was cluster one, and it failed. So I have seen a rocket blow up as well. Well, that's not something that you necessarily want want to have. But, no, uh, but, no, because well, we've been working on the mission for six years. We did manage to rebuild it though, and, and successfully launch it. Well, that's, uh, that's at least some good came out of that. Just while we've been uh, on air, uh, Jazz has texted in. Uh, very exciting to hear humans are off to Mars. But not quite um, uh, humans on board. But remember the moonwalk in the 60s as a schoolgirl and saw the three astronauts that they toured the world and managed to see a bunch of moonwalks. Well, people do get... I had this argument with Stig Abel uh, on the breakfast show this morning. He, he was not excited about it. It's exciting, isn't it? Look at, it, it, it look is, at the pictures it, I, now of, uh, you know, seeing the Earth from... Uh, the live pictures of a, of a rocket looking back at Earth. It's just exciting, isn't it? It is exciting. And, it, and actually, this is the first step to actually sending astronauts to Mars. That is our long-term goal. But we need to understand Mars, its environment, what hazards are there. Is there anything hazardous in the, in the rocks? Uh, understand the dust and how that might affect human missions to Mars. So in 20 to 30 years' time, we are looking at potentially astronauts to, to Mars. We need, we need to go back to, the, back to the moon, test technology on the moon, uh, and that will help us. On, that will be our, our step to Mars. Uh, it's going to I mean, even this uh, journey is going to take uh, between now and February next year, they expect Perseverance to launch. So obviously it's quite a big deal to send uh, astronauts to Mars as well. Just before we move on, would you be tempted to go to Mars? Presumably it is a one-way trip. No. But <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you're honest. At least you're honest. So it's nice to see the results. I mean, it'd be exciting to see the rocks when they come back from Mars, but without actually volunteering to go yourself. I, 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 yes, I, I think it needs a certain type of, type of person. I'm not sure I would want to spend uh, 500 days confined in a spacecraft because you've got the return journey. Um, yeah. I love my family. I like <laughs> you with my family. Well, I'm, in, I'm inclined to agree with you. I'll let other people go and they can come back and tell us what they saw. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box podcast. Uh, you can now listen back to my whole show on the Times Radio app, where you can also now listen to all of the Times podcasts, including Red Box 2. Make sure you subscribe and review at the Red Box podcast wherever you listen. But for now, from me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 